Forget about the babka. Just saying. You need to say that twice. Just say, hey, listen. Live, I wrote in the email live babka. It's not even like live plus babka. <laughs> We're calling it live babka. That's it. The babka is alive. It's a thing. It's a brand new type of babka. Living, breathing babka. Okay. is more consistent with my diet. Say again, which one? Virtual babka is more consistent with my diet. Uh, indeed, indeed. But the babka, <coughs> here's how it works. The babka Torah studies does not have any calories. It's this magical, right? Ed, take yes. two, take two pieces. I'm just saying. All right, by the way, all the claims, all the claims made in class are not scientifically proven and should not be taken as fact. That's my disclaimer. I was told by the, by the attorneys to mention that and to, uh, to, um, to mention that. Okay, very special announcement. Tonight, the class has been sponsored in my honor, in honor of my birthday, by a very special group of individuals. I'm gonna mention some names, by the way, if you wanna get in on this, I'm sure it's not too late. <laughs> so we'll call this, we'll call this a group information. Can we call it that? Yes. Information. Okay, yeah. good, because we don't want to leave anybody out. So, but don't feel pressure either way. Like, it's, like either way is cool. Um, I have here, who do we have? We have Steve Horowitz, Joy Maxey, Eve Bogan, Charna Perlow, Donna Herbert, Linda Tsoref, uh, Sandrine Simons, and I know as well, we have some more folks that also gave as well. Um, so if you're not mentioned, you're mentioned in my heart, even though I don't have it on the list. But thank you very much to all of you who participated and all of, you, all, all, all of those who wish to participate. It's never too late. It's never too late. And we don't have to wait till the next birthday. I'm just saying, it's like a whole birthday celebration. I should also mention this Friday night, we're doing a special Shabbat dinner in honor of my birthday. Everyone's invited. If you got the invitation and you thought you didn't want to come, but you want to come, it's not too late to change. If you didn't get the invitation, I don't know why, it should have gone out. But either way, we'd love to have you. If you want to join, just let me know and we'll get you in. Okay, all the announcements aside, let's jump into today's class. Hey, how's it going? Okay, so let's jump into the class. We have, in my opinion, one of the finest classes you will hear. In fact, I will say this. This is probably going to be the best Torah class you're going to get tonight. I, I mean, I feel like pretty confident in saying that. The night, it's getting late, so I feel like I have, uh, like the time is on my side right now. But really, like all joking aside, this is going to be a, a memorable class, and I'm, I'm, I'm calling the shot. This is like Babe Ruth, remember Babe Ruth? He called the shot, called the shot. This is a called shot, home run class. It, it's, not, it's not me. This is a sicha. This is a talk of the Rebbe. This is volume 16 of Lakute Sicha. It's a collection of the Rebbe's talks. Number four on this week's Torah portion. The fourth one of this, from this Torah portion. And it is absolute fire. I even wanted to put a fire emoji in my email that I sent out. If you don't get the email for Torah studies, the one that I send out usually very close to the start of the class, let me know. I'll get you on that list. But I tried to include a fire emoji. For some reason, my Gmail won't send emojis. I feel like other people send the emojis. I can't send the emoji in my email. It comes out with like a bunch of weird question marks. Uh, right? I don't know. You always do it from my phone. Maybe I need to do it from my phone. I don't know how it's done. Whatever. Anyway, it's fine. If the, if the emoji is the worst thing, then that's okay. This class, I'll tell you what we're going to do tonight. Buckle up. 
get comfortable, grab an extra piece of babka. We've already established that this is non-calorie babka, both the virtual and the live version. Buckle up and get ready because what we're going to do tonight is explain. Oh, you have tea, right? We have tea. We have babka. Um, I, you know, I got my seltzer. Yeah, I <laughs> brought a seltzer. That's how, that's, how, that's how geared up. I'm locked in for tonight's class. Okay, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to take a law, a halacha, that comes from the Torah, obviously. That's where all Jewish law comes from. It comes from the Torah. It's explained. It's, it's detailed. It's analyzed in the Talmud. So we're going to explain the law. I'm going to ask a few questions on the law. And then we're going to proceed to give a mystical view of the law from A to Z that happens, not happens, that will answer all of the questions that we have on the law. But we're going to learn it on a completely different plane. So one thing that's amazing about Torah is that it has multiple layers of understanding. Now you and I know this because we've talked about this so many times. Pardes. Pardes. Pardes means the orchard of Torah. Pardes is the acronym, Peirish Dalat Samach. It's an acronym, four letters. It's an acronym of the four layers of Torah um, expounding. It's not the right word. Torah exposition. We have Pshat, Remez, Drush, and Sod. Pshat, Remez, Drush, Sod, Pardes. What is Pshat, Remez, Drush, Sod? Pshat is the simple meaning. Remez is the allegorical meaning, the hints. Drush is the homiletical meaning. And you're probably thinking, what's allegorical, what's homiletical? That's remez and drush. Kidding. Um, allegorical means what th- something hints to, what it alludes to. And drush is kind of like a drusha, like a sermon, like a, you know, inspiration from the idea. And then so the final, the final word of the acronym, sod, is the mystical component. Oh, it sounds like, uh, Linda, can you check who is? Oh, thank you. All right, thank you. Um, so here's the deal. Torah exists on all four levels. When you look at anything in Torah, whether it's a story, whether it's a law, you know, it doesn't matter. You look at something in Torah, you can understand it, you can, you can explore it on any of these four levels. And the truth is, you can go up and down the escalator of Jewish thought. You can go, you can weave in and out. You can start off from Pshat and then go to Remez and Drush and Sod. You can, you can understand Torah on multiple dimensions. So it's really, it's really a profound experience. Tonight we're going to start on a simple level of halacha and then go to the mystical sheet for the downstairs class. Yeah, there's another class. Okay. Anyway, hey, we're young also. I'm just going to say, yeah, I just had a birthday, still young. Still young. What was I talking about again? Joking. All right, that was a joke. All right, for all you whippersnappers out there, here's the deal. Here's the deal. As I stroke my beard, that's getting a little bit. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that. Um, we're going to start off with the law. As I said this before, we're going to ask a few questions. We're going to explain it on a mystical level, and it's going to be amazing. All right, let's do it. Let's jump right in. The law is called Moda B'miktsas. There I've said it. Moda B'miktsat. What does Moda mean? Who's got Moda? Modeh. Modeh ani. Modeh. Modeh. Modeh means an acknowledgement, an admission, confession. Hmm. Not really confession. Testimony. 
testimony. That's more edut. Mode is, I don't know we would say testimony. Mode is more along the lines of an admission, acknowledgement. Okay, so mode b'miktsat means that someone admits, but only b'miktsat. Miktsat means halfway, partially. Let me explain. Let me give you a scenario. I'm going to give you two scenarios. You know what? Let's do this. I want you guys to tell me what you think the law should be. And let me give you two cases. Okay? Two litigants come to court. We're going to call them, in classic Talmudic analysis, we're going to, we're going to apply the names Reuven and Shimon. That's always how it's done in, in Talmudic discourse. You just go by the, 12, by the 12 tribes. You start from the top. However many characters you need, you pull them into the story. Right? Whether or not they're willing. So we have Reuven and Shimon. Hey there. Hi. You're here for the uh, Torah class? Yeah. Welcome. Tell me your name. Lexi. Lexi. Fantastic. Good. Welcome. Here, grab a, uh, yeah, grab a uh, uh, booklet. Are you, uh, yeah, yeah. Right here is good. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to give you a scenario and you tell me what you think about the scenario. Okay, here we go. Imagine Ruvain, litigant number one, drags Shimon into court. And he tells the court, he says, I lent Shimon $100, says Ruvain. I lent this guy $100. And he owed me the money. It was a 30-day loan, and he owed me the money and all that stuff after 30 days. And one second, everybody's muted. And, 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 and. 30 days passed, and I went to collect the money. And you know what happened? I came to Shimon, and Shimon said, La Hadam. You know what La Hadam means? La Hadam means, Loi Hayu Devarim Me'olam. It means never happened. Never happened. So, Ruvain says, I lent this guy money. I, Sorry, I don't know if I'm in the right place. Oh, tell me, which class? Uh, I don't know, I was, text, I was Facebook messaging Chabad in town. Okay, so it might be a downstairs class. Okay. There's one downstairs also. Either one is going to be good. It's like the... Something. Is it the Kabbalah of... Yeah. It's Kabbalah of character. That's... There you go. No worries. No worries. You can just go out that exit. Yeah, you can go right down there, down the stairs. Okay. You see that? Babka. But wait, get some babka before you leave. Well, it's okay. Should let it... Have it down there. Yes. Okay. Back to our story. So imagine Ruvain drags Shimon into court, and Ruvain says to Shimon, thanks for the clarifying. No, it's fine. But this, you missed this excitement. See, if you're in here in person, you get to be part of the excitement of the, of the miscommunications. That's, that's like the beautiful thing. Okay, so back to our story. Ruvain drags Shimon into court, and Ruvain says, this guy, Shimon, borrowed $100 from me. It's 30 days. It's passed, and I came to him to collect, and you know what he says? Never happened. This guy is denying the claim. About the money. I want my money. So it happens. So the court says to Shimon, knew what do you say? Shimon says, you, you heard the story. This guy claims he gave me money 30 days ago. Never happened. I never got, I never got a penny from this guy. Now they're going to turn to Reuben and say, okay, Reuben, you claim that you get lent the money. Do you have a document that says that a signed document with witnesses that says that you lent the money? No. Are there witnesses that saw you give him money? No. 
Okay, let me stop here for a second. Reuven claims he gave $100 to Shimon as a loan, and now he's trying to collect. Shimon says, never happened, and there's no proof, no witnesses, no contract, no document, no video evidence, nothing. Garnish. You're, you be the judge. You ready? You be the judge. What's the law? What do you say? Does Shimon owe the money? Yes or no? Based on what I just gave you? No. 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 Anybody say yes? No. I would say neither. Neither yes nor no. You're saying we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Can you force Shimon? Can you find Shimon liable to pay the money based on, based on what's presented? No. Okay. But now let me ask you another question. <coughs> Same scenario. Reuven drags Shimon to court. Reuben says, I gave, I gave this guy $100 30 days ago, and I'm trying to collect, and I'm not getting the money, and I need the court's intervention. Court says to Shimon, what do you say? Shimon says, okay, here's the deal. This is scenario number two. It's a different scenario, a little bit different. Listen to the twist. He says, okay, let me tell you what's going on. He tells the court, Shimon does. He says, I actually did borrow money from Ruvain. However, however, it wasn't $100, it was 50. Okay, aha, uh aha. -huh. Uh -huh. So Reuven claims he gave him, he lent him $100. Shimon says, I did borrow money, but it wasn't 100 it was 50 So what do you think the ruling should be? 50 bucks. 50 bucks. What about the other 50 No you evidence. You don't know who's telling the truth. No evidence. No evidence. Okay. Here, is there, could there be benefit? There should be evidence that he benefited from the additional $50, and if that's the case, there should be damage. You're talking about seizing bank accounts and phone records. I, look, we're existing in a time, Talmudic times. How are you going to prove how he used the money? I'm saying, I hear you, you but start, like... You start with one chicken, you end up with three chickens. Oh, <laughs> the, old, the case of the old uh, increasing chickens. Right, I hear you. I would not balk at that theory. Oh. Terrible. But what if the fox got the chickens in the meantime and ate them? This this is true. Good, good. So, but let's 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 think about the scenario. So, Reuven says I lent him. Reuven says I lent him hundred dollars. Shimon says I only borrowed fifty. This is a classic case. Let me say the two Hebrew words I told you before of modah b'miktzat, where he he admits to half or to a partial amount. So Shimon is not saying, I never borrowed money. I know what he's talking about. He's like, I've never seen this guy before in my life. He's not saying that. He's saying, I did borrow money. But it's not the 100, it's the 50. So he's moda, he's admitting, but only bemiktsat, only partially. Here is a very interesting wrinkle in the law. Listen to this. Halakha says the following. The 50 that he admits, obviously he has to pay. He says he owes it, so then pay it. If he, says he, if he says he borrowed $50, so that 50 is off the table, that needs to be paid. What about the other 50? Comes along halach and adds, listen to this, listen to this, adds uh, um, an interesting wrinkle. That second 50, the defendant, in this case Shimon, is required by Jewish law to take an oath, to promise, to swear. We'll talk about what that looks like in a moment, to take an oath, a halakhically valid oath, that he did not borrow a cent more than $50. If he's willing to take that oath and he takes that oath, then he's only on the hook for the 50. But if he says, you know what, I'm not taking the oath, we hit him for the whole 100. So, what I've given you are two scenarios. I, I, I would hope that your minds are, that you're thinking, 
Like, what's going on here? Why is the law different in one case versus the other? Right? Because let's break, let's break down the two cases. What we're, this is straight up Talmud right now. This is straight up Talmudic analysis. Okay? Again, let's break down the two cases. The first case is where he says, what's it called in Talmudic language? This is called Kaifer Bakol. Kaifer Bakol means he denies everything. Reuven says, you, I lent you 100. And Shimon says, never happened. Never happened. Don't know what you're talking about. You're lying. I never borrowed a cent. And, there, and there, obviously, in both cases, there's no proof. So in halacha rules, the Talmud says, nothing. You don't do a thing, no oath, no money, nothing. He's, he's off the hook. But comes along the second case of Moedah B'Miktsas, where he says, not I didn't borrow anything. He says, I borrowed 50, but not 100. So he admits partially. Suddenly, the law changes. The 50 that he admits, he pays. The 50 that he denies, instead of being off the hook, like we said before about the 100, now he's on the hook, at least to the extent of taking an oath, which is a very severe thing. Otherwise, he'll have to pay it. The question is why. Why is it different? There's two questions. Number one, how do we know that it's different? The answer is because the Torah tells us in this week's Torah portion, which we're going to get to in a moment. There's a scriptural verse that tells us that moda b'miktsas, when you admit partially, an oath is required in that case. But the Talmud adds a psychological layer that I'll just share with you right now, and then all the texts that we're going to do are going to reinforce what we're doing outside. I figure this way we'll at least understand it before just grappling and then kind of like creating it from the text. Let me explain it this way, and then we'll go into some text. Psychologically, the Talmud says the following. Most people don't have the chutzpah to look at a person that they borrow money from and to look in their eyes and say, I don't know what you're talking about, I never borrowed a cent. Most people wouldn't have the temerity, maybe back in the day, most people wouldn't have the temerity, i.e. the chutzpah, the brazenness, to say, to look that person who lent you money in the face and say, I don't know what you're talking about. But to say, oh, I did borrow money, but I think you're wrong about the amount. I remember this amount, you remember that amount, that a person would say. A person, the Talmud assesses, that the average person is not going to lie to such an extreme, but might lie if they can cut a little bit of a corner, shave a little bit of gelt off of the amount. Are you with me on this psychological analysis? Therefore, the Talmud says, when the guy says, yeah, I borrowed money, but it was only 50, red flags, red flags, red flags. Oh, you're admitting already? Take an oath. If somebody says never happened, we have no grounds to give them an oath. What are the grounds to, 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 to apply an oath, to force them to have an oath? They said never happened. We don't assume that somebody is such a brazen, bold-faced liar unless we have other proof as such. So we say you, you deny it. There's no proof. Go home. You're good. You're fine. But somebody who says, oh, I borrowed money. Oh, you did borrow money. But now you're trying to, sh you might be trying to sh cut some corners, shave a little off the total. All right, take an oath. You understand the psychology? We might disagree with the psychology, right? You, Listen, once we get into logical, we call this svara, once you get into logical, you know, analysis, and this is really psychological analysis, understanding the psyche of someone who's trying to, like, uh, bend the truth a little bit, Ken Mendingen, as they say in Yiddish, you can, you can go both ways. You can say, no, somebody wouldn't say that, they would say that. This is the Talmudic approach, and it explains the verses. So let's do this inside. Let's do this inside. Open up your books or your booklets to Mishpatim, oh, this week's Torah portion, Mishpatim, a book of laws. We move from the narrative of the Bible to the legal 
elements of the Bible. A lot of civil law, torts and damages and other forms of law are discussed in this week's Torah portion. We are going to look at text one on page 47 in your booklets. I'm going to put it up on the screen as well. Let me get it ready. And let's jump in. I'm going to read all these texts for right now because there's, there's, there's a lot of nuance here. I want to make sure that, it's, uh, that nothing gets lost. Okay, this is from Mishpatim, text one, Exodus 22.8. Here we go. For any sinful word, n- none of this is going to make sense. Trust me, the verse is not going to make sense, but I'm going to do my best to explain it. For any sinful word, for a bull, for a donkey, for a lamb, for a garment, for any lost article, concerning which you will say that this is it, the pleas of both parties shall come to the judges, and whoever the judges declare guilty shall pay twofold to his neighbor. I told you so. This doesn't make any sense. The verse at face value, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to this verse. It's a jumble of words. There's a sinful word followed by bulls, donkeys, lambs, and garments, or any lost object. What are we ta- what's, what's the sinful word? Concerning that which he will say that this is it. Who says this is it? Since when does somebody say this is it? This is what? What are we even talking about here? None of this makes sense. So let me, let, 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 let's keep this up. Let's keep up text one. Let me tell you what it's talking about, according to the Talmud. This is why you can't understand Jewish law without the Talmud. The Talmud says, here's the case. The case is, and it's a, it's a variation from the case that I just gave you with the loan, but it's the same concept. Imagine, I'm going to stop sharing the screen. Imagine you, no, not you, Ruvain, same people. Ruvain is headed out of town. He's going on vacation. Ruvain is going to Cancun. That's it. Ruvain's like, I'm done with this. This is ridiculous. It's, it's, it's uh, winter in Atlanta. It's like 55 degrees. This is crazy. I'm out. Okay? That was a joke. So it's, this is, I'm out of here. So he's going to Cancun. He has, right, he has three chickens. The aforementioned three chickens. Ruvain knows that if he leaves his three chickens out in the cold winter of Atlanta, the chickens are not going to make it. So he goes to his friend Shimon's house, knocks on the door, says, Shimon, can you take my three chickens for a week while I'm in Cancun? Shimon says, sure. Great. Comes back after a week. Shimon, I'm back. Whoa, Ruvain, you have a nice tan. Yes. All right. Can I get my chickens back? And Shimon says, bad news. Bad news. Um, Remember those three chickens? Yeah. Only one of them, I only have one of them to return. What, what happened? Two of them got stolen in the middle of the night. I, somehow, in the middle of the night, they were stolen, they're gone. I only have one left. And Ruvain takes him to court. He says, I think this guy's lying. I gave him three chickens. He gave me back one chicken. He's coming up with the story of theft. Fabricated. I don't believe him. There's no proof. What does the court say? The one chicken, of course, he has to give it to him. What about the other two? The same scenario that I told you before about the loan. He admits to getting the chickens to watch. If he said, chickens, what chickens? Chicken? What, schnitzel? No, live chickens. You never gave me live chickens. When did you give me live chickens? If he denies it and there's no proof and there's no document and there's no evidence, well, then how how do you extract chickens from a guy who says, I never got chickens? But if the guy says, I got chickens, but I only have now one chicken. I only have partial chicken. I have... I got partial chicken for you. At that point, yeah, what's going to happen? The court is going to cluck and say, it's not even a thing. The court is going to say, you got to give back the chicken that you have and the other chickens that you say you don't have, 
uh, uh, we're not sure. You got to promise that you got to take an oath that you don't actually have. This is again motive of mixas. Let me pull up this text again. Let's look inside again. Look, look back at text number one. Text one. For any sinful word, sinful word implies that this guy might be lying. For a bull, for a donkey, for a lamb, for a garment, might as well just say for a chicken, for any lost article. Lost article meaning the two chickens that are missing in my scenario. Okay? Concerning that which he will say that this is it. The guy who took the chickens in will say, this is it. This is all I have left because the other ones were stolen. You with me? The pleas of both parties shall come to the judges. And whoever the judges declare guilty shall pay twofold for his neighbor. That means that if he's caught lying and he did steal it actually, then he has to pay twice. But otherwise, he has to take an oath. Otherwise, he has to take an oath. Shall come to the judges means that the judges will then apply an oath. And this is what the Talmud says. Let's take a look at text number two. So I gave you two examples of Modem Mixas. I want to be very clear here. Two examples of Modem Mixas partial admission, whether it's a loan or whether it's a deposit. Whether it's a loan, the guy claims I gave him 100, he says you only gave me 50, or whether it's a deposit. The guy says, um, I gave you three chickens, and he says, um, oh, you know what? It could even be this case. What if the guy, forget, it, forget he says it's stolen. What happens if the guy comes back after vacation, he says, where are my three chickens? He says, three chickens, you only gave me one chicken. It's the same scenario. You know, let's, get, let's keep it easier like that. This guy claims three chickens. You know what? You want to make it easier? A hundred chickens, and he has 50 chickens left. And he's, so he's giving back 50 chickens. He says, I only have 50, you only gave me 50, not 100 chickens. It's the same scenario. There, you have to give back, obviously, what you, what you claim you got, what you admit that you got. And the other, the others, you have to, you have to take an oath. Here's the Talmud, Bava Kama, text number two. Rabbi Chia Bar Abba said, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, regarding one who falsely states about a deposit that the thief stole it, he's not obligated to take an oath. We don't know if he's falsely, if he's falsely claiming or not. But somebody who says, no, it is, the, it is the theft case. I should have stuck with my example of the chickens that, were stole, that he claims were stolen. If the guy says all the chickens were stolen, yeah, he's not obligated to take an oath until he denies part of the claim and admits the part of the claim. Right? If he says, I have some, but I don't have some, oh, now we're getting murky. Now it's getting murky. Now you have to take an oath. What is the reason for this, says the Talmud? As the verse states, concerning, that which he will, concerning which he will say that this is it. In other words, this is it. I only owe you this or I only have this to give you back, etc. Indicating an admittance of only this part, but no more. It's moda b'miktsas that triggers the oath, but outright denial of the whole thing, there's no oath. Psychologically, the Talmud explains, this is what I told you before. It is in accordance with the statement of Rabbah. Rabbah gives us the psychology, as Rabbah said. For what reason did the Torah say that one who admits to a part of the claim must take an oath? A guy who denies it all the way, there's no oath. A guy who admits, you give him an oath, it seems like counterintuitive. The guy who, who says, no, nothing, never happened, right? No oath. The guy who says, oh, I, I owe you 50, suddenly you give, him a, you, you, give him a, you give him an oath? You're more stringent than the guy who admits? Yeah. It is because there is a presumption that a person does not exhibit insolence, chutzpah, by lying in the presence of his creditor. And this person who denies part of the claim actually wants to deny all the debt so as to be exempt. In other words, he does want to lie the whole way through. The fact, and the fact that he does not deny all of it is because a person does not exhibit insolence. In other words, the fact that he only denies part of it, sorry, the fact that he denies part of it is an indication that he's actually lying, not that he's telling the truth. He's trying to, he's trying to make his lie more credible. He would love to say never happened. But to make his lie more credible, he's, give, he's admitting to part of it. He's saying, not, oh, I, I, never borrowed 50, I never borrowed any money. He's saying, I borrowed 50. That's his way of, of, 
skimming from the top. Therefore, the merciful one, Hashem, God, imposed an oath on him to ensure that he will admit to the full debt. That is the Talmud and the Talmudic analysis. I'm going to take a deep breath, or not, and check in. Does this make sense? Yes? Moda b'miktas? Moda b'miktas? Admitting partially. The Torah says, the Talmud explains, you're on the hook for whatever you admit, obviously, and the rest... You take an oath. Why is it different than a case of outright denial? We say outright denial is so chutzpah we assume that you're actually telling the truth. It's, you have to be such a bold-faced liar to say, I never got money from that guy at all, that, that if you pull off that lie, there's nothing we can do. But the moment you start saying, I did borrow, however, this and that, okay, all right, all right, all right, stop, 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 stop. Red flags, take an oath about the rest that you're denying. If you, if you take the oath, if you promise, we'll let you go. If you don't, pay up the whole, the full amount. That's the law. This is halach. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit. Listen, the whole, the whole class is predicated on us understanding the law, so I, I had to make sure that we got this straight. But let's pick up the pace a drop because uh, there's so much to get to. What is an oath in Jewish law? What does it look like? Text three. How serious is an oath? How severe is an oath? I'm glad you asked. Text through the Talmud says the following. The judges say to him, when administering, before administering an oath, this is anyone who's administered an oath, but of course we're talking about a specific case, but just keep this in mind, general, uh, general uh, uh, knowledge here. The judges say to him, beware that the entire world trembled when the Holy One, blessed be he, said at Mount Sinai, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When you take an oath in Jewish law, you swear by God's name. Remember the Ten Commandments? God said, don't take my name in vain. Be careful, bro. Be careful. You're about to take an oath with God's name? Be careful. Continues the Talmud. Beware. The Talmud says the judges would tell this to the litigant about to take an oath. Beware that with regard to all of the other transgressions in the Torah, punishment is exacted only from the transgressor. Whereas here, with regard to falsely swearing in court, punishment is exacted from him and from his family. Talk about threats. Beware. The judges would continue. That with regard to all of the other transgressions in the Torah, punishment is exacted only from the transgressor, whereas here punishment is exacted from him and the entire world. If you lie under oath in a Jewish court, the whole world is going to shake. Beware that with regard to all other transgressions in the Torah, a merit will work to delay punishment for two or three generations. You might get off the hook and it might only hit a little bit later. Whereas here, a punishment is exacted immediately. You're going to pay the price if you're lying. Things that fire and water cannot destroy, a false oath can destroy. They scare the litigant out of his mind. That is the intention of the judges, to really instill, there's no other way to say it, the fear of God in this person before they take an oath. Says the Talmud, if the defendant says, I will not take an oath, forget it. <laughs> there's no way I'm not. The court dismisses him immediately and rules him liable to pay. That's the way it works. The court's agenda is to forewarn the litigant who is about to take an oath about the severity of such an oath and to encourage them to just pay the money. Pay the money. You with me on this? Taking an oath is a very serious thing, which means that the court is trying to avoid taking, litigants taking an oath at all, at all costs, which leads to the following question. Okay, stay with me in the train of thought. Stay with me. The only way moda b'miktas, partial admission, kicks in is when 
the claimant puts in the claim, in the first case that I gave you, the loan, 150. When the claimant puts in the claim in the court for 100, and the defendant responds with a 50, that's when you have modem mikdash. So you have 100 on the table, and the guy says, well, it's only 50. That's partial admittance. What would happen? What would happen if the defendant presented his claim first in court? What if the defendant came to court and said the following? Hey, guys, I owe this guy $50. And the court says, great, pay him $50. And then the guy counters and says, oh, you owe me another 50. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not moda b'mitzas. You with me on this? Moda b'mitzas, partial, partial um, admit, uh, admission, is only when you have a full 100 on the table and the guy says 50. He counters that with a 50. He halves it or partial, you know, partially admits to it. But if the order, literally the order of the claims were reversed, and it sounds very, very um, silly, but if the order of the claims were reversed, if first the defendant would speak up in court and say, I owe this guy $50, well, the court would say, so we're good. So give him $50. Done. 50 is off the table. All that's left is now 50. And the guy says, I lent you 50. And he says, no, you didn't. It's not about to mix us anymore. Are you with me on that? Because, yes? Anybody with me? Yes? Sort of? Ah, oh, I'm getting a lot of blank stairs. There's so much blank stairs. All right, let me try this again. Let me try. I know, I know. I'm sorry. I should, okay. It's a Talmud class. Got to help cup. You, you mentioned, and the guy comes back and says, you, I, you owe me 50, but... Right. Because the I'm 50 is off the table. No, the 50 is off the table. The guy already said I own right, 50. Right. Okay. The, the, the defendant, let's say the defendant speaks first. He says, ah, Shimon says, I owe Ruvain $50. Pause. The court would say, all right, give him $50. He gives him $50. What's Ruvain going to say now? Uh, he still owes me $50. Well, that's why you're in court. But I'm saying if you reverse the order, if you, if you break it down frame by frame, Right, so Ruby now says, okay, but now he owes me 50. And to that 50, what does Shimon say? Nothing. He's not mode to anymore. He's not partially admitting. He's denying outright the 50. That's outstanding. Are you with me on this? Even if you're not with me on this, this is the case, right? The only way you get mode to is if the guy levies the claim. I don't know if that's a real word over here. If, if the guy puts out the claim for the 100 first, the claimant... Ruve makes the claim for 100, and Shimon counters with a 50. If Shimon offers the 50, and Ruve counters with a 50, and Shimon counters with a denial of the 50, you no longer have motive mixes anymore. Whether you like it or not, guys, I see that y'all don't like this. It doesn't matter. That's the way it is. When Shimon gives Ruve 50, Ruve only has 50 more on the table. To that 50, Shimon is kofar bakal. He outright denies it. He says, I never got that money from you. That's not a partial admission. That's an outright denial of the 50. Fine. Which begs the question. In court, why would we ever allow a scenario where Reuven should go first? If we want to keep people away from swearing, theoretically, why not always let the defendant go first? How do we know that we don't let the defendant go first? Well, for this, we have another verse from this week's Torah portion. I'm going to share my screen for the online crew. Let's get inside as well. Oh, look at this. Ah, I skipped a paragraph in text three. Oh, well, that's fine. Hello? It's water under the bridge. Yes. Um, in the first scenario when um, uh, he, he says, I'm not going to take the oath, and he's Madeh B'Mixah. Yeah. 
Does he, does the court uh, in the community assume that he is guilty or, or would they ever assume that no, he's just a righteous person with a, with a $50 bill that, that doesn't want to uh, take a note? If we're going to be nice, we'll, we'll assume the latter. I think that's the nicer way of looking at it. The guy is probably, you know, innocent, but he didn't want to swear, but he's still on the hook for the 50. It's a good question you're asking. Um, I don't know. I don't know the psychology of how we're going to look at him, but either way, he's on the hook for the, essentially for the full amount, the full 100 in that case. You're asking a very good question. It might be something the commentaries discuss. Okay. Could you repeat the question? Because I didn't let's, hear it. Let's, uh, the, the question okay. is basically, do we assume that he's guilty or we assume that he's innocent but didn't want to swear? That's the question. If he, if he says, I'm not going to take an oath, do we assume that he's guilty, that he's a liar, or do we assume that he's maybe innocent but, but didn't want to pay? It's, it's, it's a theoretical question. We're going to, let's, let's, let's keep on going because we still have, haven't even hit. We have 17 minutes left. We haven't even hit the mystical part. So let's do text 4A. Yeah, very quickly, please. Is the, is the, the guy who came in and said, this guy owes me 100, does he ever have to take an oath? No. No. We put the oath on the other guy. We put the oath on the other guy. Okay, text four. You can't take an oath and, and collect. Jew, Jewish law does not allow you to do that. You can't say, I promise that he owes me money, and then unilaterally collect. That's like saying, I promise that I'm right. How, how, would, how would that stand up in court? I don't have any proof, but I promise I'm right, and he owes me money. That, 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 that doesn't stand. That doesn't stand up in court. Um, okay, text 4a. Take a look. This is how we know that the claimant goes first. And God said to Moses, come up with me to the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets, the law and the commandments, which I have written to instruct them. So Moses and Joshua's servant arose, and Moses ascended to the mount of God. And to the elders he said, wait for us here until we return to you and here. Aaron and Hor are with you. Whoever has a case, listen to this. Whoever has a case, let him go to them. Whoever has a case means, this is when Moses went up to the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights to get the, to get the law, to get the tablets. So, so the, 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 the communication was, whoever has a case, a legal case, should go to them, to, to Aaron and Hor, his nephew. So the, the, I did the, what we learn from here is whoever has a case means whoever, ha, whoever has the claim should be the one that approaches the court and speaks first in court. And we find this explicitly in the Talmud text 4b. Rav Nachman said in the name of, of Rabbi Bar Avu, um, from where, to, where is it derived that a court first attends only to the claimant and only afterwards attends to the counterclaims of the defendant? As it is stated, whoever has a claim, let him come near to them. Whoever has a claim against another should submit his claim to them first. So we derive from the verses that when you have two litigants, that you always go, you first listen, the court first listens to the claim of the claimant and only then to the counterclaim of the defendant. But again, in our case, that sets up a scenario of moedah b'mitzas. You only have the scenario of partial omission when you first have the claim, and then you have the response to the claim. Let it go the other way around. Let's first hear the defendant's words that I only owe 50. Let's wipe that out. Let's wipe out the 50. Then the remaining 50 is being totally denied, and that way we, we avoid an oath. Why are we setting up a scenario to have you know, an, an additional oath and, and all that scenario and all that chaos surrounding an oath, taking an oath, not taking an oath, owing money that you don't really owe, paying money that you don't really owe? Why create that scenario? Just have the defendant go first. Okay, so that's one question. And second question is text 4C. We see right here, text 4C on page 51. This comes from the Code of Jewish Law. It says, we call upon the claimant first. If there is a significant loss 
for the defendant, then we call upon him first. So we do find there's an exception to the rule. In a case of, of a significant loss, and there's no t- I have zero time to explain a scenario, to weave a scenario where there's a significant loss, but if there's a significant loss, then some, in some cases, rare instances, we do allow the defendant to go first. And now the question is, so then what's going on here? Who's going first? Why is it, some t- why is it typically that the rule is that, we, that the claimant goes first and only then the defendant? Why in certain extenuating circumstances do we let the defendant go first? And what does it mean that there's an extreme lo- a significant loss? What kind of scenario is that, et cetera? So we le- we're left with a bunch of questions on the law. Whether or not the questions are 100% clear, we're going we're, we're gonna to move on and, and, and leave that aside for a moment. But the core thing that we've learned is that there's a scenario called Moda B'Mikzas where somebody takes someone else to court, drags them to court, and says, I claim this full amount, and the counter, the defense, the defendant says, I counterclaim only a partial, and the law is an oath. But in certain cases, if there's a massive loss, then he doesn't have to take an oath because he goes first before the other guy. What's going on here? There are ways to answer this in, in Jewish law. We're not going to go in at least, we're not going to, tonight's class is not about explicating this, explaining this on a, on a legal, legalistic level. This class is all about the spirit of the law. We're going to learn the Kabbalah of the law. And so I present to you the mystical dimension of this law in all of its details. Okay, you have a claimant and a defendant. You have a party that says, you owe me, right? A hundred, the other guy says, no, only 50. So one guy claims a full amount, the other guy counters with a partial amount. What does this mean spiritually? Who is the claimant and who is the defendant? Who's the one dragging the other one into court and who's the one being dragged to court? When we look at the deeper teachings of Torah, we find something interesting. Anybody familiar with the Yetzirah? Are we familiar with that term, the Yetzirah? What is the Yetzirah? It's a working definition of the Yetzirah. Evil inclination. But did you know that according to our tradition, the evil inclination has another name? What's the other name for the evil inclination? Satan. And what is the Satan? Like Satan, right? What is the Satan? What does the Satan do? The Satan is not only the force inside, not the force, the, uh, the voice inside that tries to persuade us to mess up, to do something wrong, but the Satan is also the prosecuting angel above that then drags us into court and says, look what he did. You with me on this? It's like a classic case of entrapment. You know what entrapment is? It's where you, you set someone up to break the law, and then you say, ah, he broke the law. Huh? Look at that, he broke the law. You got to prosecute him. You got to put him away, he broke the law. Meanwhile, who set him up in the first place? You set him up and then you, you, you try to throw him into the slammer? It's exactly what the Yetzirah. Yetzirah is the Satan, is the Malachamav, is the angel of death. It's all the same energy. You know what they say, Ju- judge, jury, and executioner? It's even more. It's the one that gives the bad advice, which is the one that then makes the claim, which is the one that then executes the punishment, quite literally, um, as the angel of death. So I'm going to share my screen. Let's take a look at this inside text number five. Take a look, Talmud Baba Batra, the Yetzirah versus the people. I love that little, uh, that little caption, page 52. It was taught in a brighter with regards to Satan, Satan. 
He descends to the world and misleads a person into sinning as the evil inclination inside. He then ascends to heaven. This guy's busy. This guy's got mileage. Right? He comes down and then gets, a, gets us to mess up. Then he goes up to heaven, levels accusations against that very sinner and inflames God's anger against him. He then receives permission to act and takes away the sinner's soul as punishment. Right? So he comes back down and then uh, acts as the old, uh, what is it, the grim reaper? Yes? Did I get that right? Is that the grim reaper? Yeah? Angel of death? That's a line that apparently, you heard about this? In that game, that epic football game, uh, Kansas City? And, uh, the grim reaper or the angel of death? Right, but, but the, the Kansas City, uh, the Chiefs, who did the Chiefs just play? Bills. Chiefs and Bills. So apparently, Reed, Andy Reed, said to Patrick Mahomes, if you know who these are, great. If not, don't worry. Doesn't, doesn't mean anything there. He said to him with 13 seconds left on the clock, 13 seconds left on the clock, down by three points. He said, when things get grim, be the grim reaper. <laughs> that was his line. I don't know. Whatever. But in this case, that sounds kind of dark. But here's the point. In this case, the Satan is, is the Yitzhahara, is the prosecuting angel and the angel of death that, that, that takes retribution. Rish Lakas says, Back inside, Satan and the evil inclination are one and the same. Satan, who is who's Satan, who yates Sahara, same, same dude. So here's, here's the meaning of this, my friends. We have a claimant and a defendant. Who's the claimant dragging the other one at the court? Who's the, who's the one who's dragging the other one at the court? Help me out here, based on this. Huh? Oh, I thought you said, who's dragging who? Who's dragging who? I just said the claimant, but I don't know what you're Right, no, who, who's the claimant in a spiritual sense? The Yetzirah, the Satan, is dragged, and who's being dragged to court? You and I. You and I are being dragged into court. So it's the, it's the Satan that's dragging us into court, and what's the claim? The claim is, look, you see, I got this guy to sin. I got this person to sin. They're all mine, right? 100% is owed to me. 100%, they're mine. That's it. They're done. They're finished. There's no virtue anymore. There's no value. There's no goodness. They've darkened their soul. They've, they've occluded. I don't even know if that's a word. I think it is. They've, 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 they've hidden their, their divine spirit. It's done. They've killed their, their goodness inside. It's finished. They're totally in my grasp. They owe me the full hundred. That's the claim. We're now learning this law on a higher level, spiritual level. Okay? What's the counterclaim? Not 150. It says, I do owe you. But not 100, not 100%, 50. Why? Because even though I sinned, even though I messed up, even though I fell for your persuasions, but still there's a part of me that remains pure. There's a part of me that still remains connected to goodness and godliness and purpose. There's a part of me that, uh, that remains faithful to my mission. And the truth is, there's a lot of me that still does mitzvot. Even when I do bad things, I still do good things. So I don't owe you 100%. I owe you 50% of your claim. You're claiming 100, 100%. And my counter is 50. My counter is 50. Take a look. Take a look at what the Alter Rebbe says. Okay? This is text number 6, page 53. The Alter Rebbe says the following. After the sinful act, 
However, the sinner's animal soul, which animates the body and is integrated into it, as well as his body itself, return and rise from the negativity and draw closer to the, holy, to the holiness of the divine soul that pervades them. The divine soul always believes in the one God and remains faithful to him even while the sin is being committed. It is just that she, the divine soul, is trapped within the clutch of the animal soul that is compelling the body to sin. The Alter Rebbe says in Tanya something powerful, chapter 24 of Tanya, that even even as the sin is unfolding, the godly soul remains faithful to her God, to her purpose, to her mission. It's only that there are other parts of the body that are sinning. So the person claims, Satan claims, you're all mine, 100%, you owe me everything. And the person claims back, not true, I owe you everything. I didn't sin wholeheartedly, I sinned. Part of me engaged in sin, part of me remained pure and, and, and unsullied by this action. Text 7, let's continue. Text 7, not only, not only is part of us always pure, the reality is that everyone has a tremendous number of mitzvot, of good deeds, at least 50% good deeds. Text 7, the Talmud says, Rish Lakish said, with regard to the sinners of, of the Jewish people, the fire of Gehinnom has no power over them as may be learned from the golden altar. The golden altar in the temple was only covered by gold, the thickness of a golden dinner. It's like a coin, thin layer of thin layer of gold. Yet it stood for many years and the fire did not burn it for its gold did not melt. So too the sinners of the Jewish people who are filled with good deeds like a pomegranate, how much more so should the fire of Gehinnom have no power over them? In other words, even those that are called quote-unquote sinners are also at the same time filled with good deeds like a pomegranate. That's what the Talmud says. Even the sinners are filled with good deeds, which means the counterclaim to the, to the Satan, to the Yitzhar, you're saying that I've that, not I, that the person, the defendant, the person here being dragged into this heavenly court, the person is holy and completely, holy, W-H-O-L-Y, is completely in the clutches of evil, 100% in the clutches of evil. The, per, the defendant says, I don't know what you're talking about, 100% in, in evil, in, in your clutches? Not true. Even while I sinned, my godly soul wasn't part of that, wasn't privy to the sin. And the truth is, even as I sin, I also have good deeds. I'm filled with good deeds like a pomegranate. You understand the spiritual dialogue here? The spiritual dialogue is there's a claimant and a defendant. The claimant is the satan. The claimant says, I got your soul, right? I got your soul. I sucked your soul, Whoosh, right? I got, you're possessed. Not, uh, it's not a Jewish thing, but like, right? I got you. I got you. And the defendant says, you don't got me. Maybe a little bit you got me. You got me a little bit. This is called moda b'miktsa. I'm admitting, I'm, I'm confessing partially yeah, I, I did sin, I did do, I wasn't perfect, but all the way, 100%, no, maybe 50, maybe 25, it doesn't have to be 50, maybe 10, maybe 70, but not 100%. That's the case, that's the case. So what's the ruling? What's the ruling? So the, <coughs> the guilt that's admitted is admitted, but what's the ruling? You gotta take an oath, you gotta take an oath. You understand what we're doing here? We're learning a, a halacha in a completely mystical way. If, if this is confusing, I, I try to set this out from the beginning. We're learning a legal case from a spiritual perspective. We're, we're, we're taking the elevator straight to the top floor and learning a parallel situation on a completely different level of Torah interpretation. So we have a case where a claimant says, I lent you $100 and he says only 50 and he has to take an oath. Okay, good. That's the physical example. The spiritual example is the Satan says, I got you, 
I got you, you're mine. And the person says, no, you didn't. You got me a little bit, but not all the way. I still have, I still have virtue, I still have value, I still have holiness, I still have godliness. I'm still a good person. So what's the law? What's the ruling? Shvua, you have to take an oath. What's the oath? What, is it, what does the oath mean in a spiritual context? I'll tell you. Text 8. Ah, it's too long. <laughs> and we did it Sundays in Kabbalah and Coffee. We just did it a few weeks ago. What's an oath? For those that are with us Sunday mornings, it's Overcoming Folly chapter, sorry, Discourse 14. Where we just finished Discourse 15 this past Sunday. So we did, we did it a few weeks ago, several weeks ago. Here's the deal. An oath in Hebrew is called Shavua. The Hebrew word for oath is Shavua. Shavua, if you re-vowelize the first letter, which is a shin, you know, the Hebrew letter shin, if you put the dot on the right side, it's a shin. On the left side, it's a sin. So Shavua turns into Savua or Soveya, which means to satiate or to, I guess satiate is the best word. When you give someone the energy, you feed them the energy, you give them whatever they need, you give them strength, you give them energy, you give them courage, you give them, you help someone out. You give them, you feed them energy. Satiate. Sovea. So here's what it means. Person is being hauled into court, heavenly court. Right? The Satan says, I got you. The person says, nope, not all the way. I still, I still retain some goodness. So the verdict is, you know what you have to do? You take an oath. What's an oath? An oath is the opportunity to fill yourself with, a with, with energy, the energy born of recommitment. In other words, facing this challenge of the Satan, facing the claim, not challenge, facing the claim of the Satan, that I got you and you're in my clutches and you're done and you're finished and your spiritual career is over, might as well walk on the dark side and dance with me. Brother, dance with me, if that's what the Satan would say, right? The response is no, and this is an opportunity to, to, to reinvigorate oneself spiritually and say, and double down and say, no, I'm not in your clutches, and I promise I'm not in your clutches, and I pledge my allegiance to God Almighty and to my purpose and to Torah and mitzvot, and I'm not going to follow you again. And you know what? I regret the 50% or whatever it is, whatever amount is that I, that I followed your ways. And the oath is not literally an oath in the mystical sense. Oath means a recommitment. It's a pledge. It uh, literally means a pledge, actually. It's a pledge. It's a recommitment. And it's, it's re-energizing oneself to recommit, to refocus on the positive, the spiritual, the holy, and to turn away from all the mishagasa. So we've, we've, we've portrayed the scenario. What's the scenario? Spiritual scenario. The Satan says, and by the way, Satan could be the inner voice. This happens to us all the time. Who am I kidding? Right? I'm going to come to a Torah class. Uh, am, I, am I shy to a Torah class? Am I, is it for me? I know who I am. I know what I do. I'm going to come to suddenly put on these clothes of, a, of, a, of an angel and come to a Torah class? Come on. I'm going to light Shabbat candles this Friday night. What's the point? I didn't do it last week. I might not do it next week. Who am I kidding? I'm not... I should wrap tefillin this morning. Who am I, right? Come on, I'm a different type of person. I don't wrap tefillin. That's what the Satan says. Satan says, you're, you're mine. You're not a holy person. You're, you're, you're not worthy of doing a mitzvah. Are you with me on this? Uh, hopefully this is resonating. The Satan says, you're not worthy of a mitzvah. You're on my side, not that side. And so the Torah tells us you have to stand up to the Satan and say, no, even if you're partially correct, 
that I have, you know, I have, you know, flirted with, you know, some other activities in the past, it doesn't make a difference. I'm still a good person. I'm still a Jew. I'm still a Yid. I still have an Hashemah. I still have a connection to Torah Mitzvot. I still have a connection with Hashem. And I can still do the Mitzvah right now, and it doesn't matter what you say. And that experience is called Shavuot, Soveya. It fills us with energy. It re-energizes us to focus on the correct thing. But we have one more twist. One more twist. Sometimes the defendant can go first. In court, when there's, a, when there's a great loss, we said this before, when there's, an, when there's an extreme loss on the table, the defendant can claim first, and when the defendant claims first, there's no oath. What does that mean? To understand this, and this is, this is the final twist of today's class, we have to introduce one more Talmudic text. Notice, it's interesting. Everything here, almost everything, all the texts come from, come from the Talmud. We're literally using the Talmud, using, we're, we're analyzing the Talmud, and then elevating it to a much, a much higher space. Here we go. Text number nine uh, from Talmud chapter Brachot. This is page 57. Listen to this. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai fell ill, he was one of the leading sages, if not the leader, the leading sage of his generation. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai fell ill, his students entered to visit him. When he saw them, he began to cry. Lamp of Israel, the right pillar, the mighty hammer, the man whose life's work is the foundation of the future of the Jewish people. They said to him, why are you crying? They were praising him. Why are you crying? So he said to his students, Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai said, I have two paths before me, one of the Garden of Eden and one of Gehinnom, heaven and hell. And I do not know on which they are leading me, and, and will I not cry? Right? So he says, I'm about to pass away, and I don't know where I'm going to go. Am I going to go up or down? Am I going to go right or left? Am I going to go to heaven or hell? So I shouldn't cry? Of course I'm going to cry. Yeah? So all the commenters asked the same question. Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai wasn't sure if he was a tzaddik. You kidding me? How can you not be so, how can you be so, un, so not self-aware? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaki is literally the guy who went to Vespasian, the Roman general, who became the Roman emperor, and secured a space to keep Judaism alive, a city called Yavna, where Torah study would be reestablished. This was at the time of the Second Temple's destruction. He literally saved Judaism, as we know it today. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaki is not sure whether he's going to heaven or hell. Are you kidding? Well, if that's the case, then we're all doomed. I mean, then, then we're all goners. How, but but, but, but ser- on a serious note, how was he uncertain? How was he uncertain? Here's what the Rebbe says. The Rebbe shares something that is absolutely life-changing and mind-blowing, and this is the final text for today, text number 10. Okay, page 58. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai was consumed at every moment with the service of God by studying Torah and observing the mitzvot. He was so involved with this mission that he had no time to halt his service and reflect on his overall state. How can he stop and think about himself and about his standing while there is a mission to complete? However, at the time of his passing, when he was completing his life's mission, he stopped his work to finally make an honest accounting. After all, if he didn't do it then, when would he? And that is what caused him to weep. Let me explain what the Rebbe says. The reason why Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh was so not self-aware is because he never analyzed himself. He didn't think about himself, oh, am I righteous? Am I not righteous? Am I worthy? Am I not worthy? Am I holy? Am I not holy? Am I a tzaddik? Am I not a tzaddik? He never had those thoughts throughout his whole life. Why? Because he was doing his mission. He was so busy in the tat. You know, like when you're in the moment, you're not analyzing the moment. You know what I'm talking about? He was in the moment. He was locked into the experience. He wasn't analyzing, oh, how's it going? 
You know when you ask the question like, oh, how's this relationship going? It's when you're not fully immersed in the relationship, right? It's like, it's your outside and you're kind of analyzing, saying, okay, well, how, where is this going or how's this going? It means you're not, you're not fully invested. You're not fully, it's not, not, it's not a criticism. It's just saying, it's, it, you ask that when you're outside of it. You don't ask it when you're inside of it. When you're inside of it, you're just inside of it. You're just living in the moment. It's like, you know, you're on the dance floor. It's a simcha, a wedding, a bar mitzvah, a bas mitzvah, whatever it is. And you're on the dance floor. And you're totally locked into the experience. And you're so happy that you're dancing. You're not thinking, how do I look? Do I know the dance moves? Right? Who's, if you're doing the, the hora with a bunch of guys, right? Am I, is, should my hand go on the right shoulder or the left shoulder? Like, you're not thinking, you're not analyzing. You're just... And then you see the video and you're like, oh, then you can, cr you can cringe later. Right. You cringe, the cringe comes later. But if you're cringing, here's the point, if you're cringing in the moment, you know what that means? Then you're not in the moment. If you're cringing in the moment, you're not in the moment. The Rebbe says something powerful. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai lived his life always in the moment. You know what they call this in modern psychology because it sounds cool? Living in the flow. He was always in the flow. You know what flow is? Flow. I think somebody wrote a book called Flow. That's how cool that is. Flow. Yeah, flow. It's like um, when like, basketball players are like, locked in for free throws. They're not even thinking about it. They're just totally in, in the moment. You know, like Shaq couldn't make a free throw? He was overthinking it. Yeah. He, was just, like, he, was just, he was just blocking himself out. Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal. He owns the Krispy Kreme that got burnt down twice on Ponce. Yeah, it was arson. Twice. Right here, our local Krispy Kreme. Yeah. Anyway, we're not going to talk about Krispy Kreme. It's, it's not about donuts right now. Here's... But it, but it is. It always is. Donuts, by the way, have calories. It was kosher. Yeah, it was kosher. Kosher Krispy Kreme. I'm going to call this a hate crime. I mean, I'm not. I don't want to throw. No, no, no. I'm not, not being flippant. I'm not. All right. Nah, I'm not being flippant here. All right. Back to our story. Let's wrap this up. Rabbi Yochanan and Zake lived his life in the flow. He was in the spiritual flow. He wasn't analyzing, am I a tzaddik? How do I look? Where, what, does God like me? Does God not like me? Is it this? Is it that? <laughs> He's not thinking about this stuff. Who has time to think about yourself when you have a mission to do? It's not about me. It's about the mission. The rabbi says, at his deathbed, on his deathbed, that was the first time in his life that he thought, he said, wait a second, hold on. Am I, am I did I do what I need to, am I, am I a tzaddik? Am I not a tzaddik? And of course, the conclusion is, yeah, you're a tzaddik. But the first time he ever even processed that thought was at the end of his life. Why? Because he never was about processing thoughts. He was just living in the moment. And this takes us to the most dazzling explanation of the conclusion of this, of this, of this idea. When the Satan count claims, not counters, when the Satan claims, I got you, you're not worthy, you're not spiritual, you're not holy. You're not a tzaddik. Look at you. I got you to sin. Ah, admit, admit who you are. I got you. You're 100% mine. There's two options. One option is to say, well, I promise from now on I'm going to be good. I'm going to be true to mission. You take that pledge. You take that oath. You swear. You, 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 you energize yourself. That's one option. The second option is, in a case of extreme loss, you don't have to take an oath. What does that mean? Loss. Time. The greatest loss we have is time. Who has the time to answer that inner voice? Who has the time to waste their time and say, no, I am holy, I'm not holy. Who cares what the Yetzirah says? Who cares? We have good things to accomplish. When the inner voice says, oh, you're not worthy, you know what you say to the inner voice? Sorry, buddy, 
I got an appointment with the next mitzvah. I don't have time to deal with your analysis. I don't have time to analyze myself. Am I holy? Am I not holy? Am I worthy? Am I not worthy? Am I, am I kosher? Am I not kosher? I don't have time. I got the next mitzvah waiting for me. This is the antidote. This is the, not antidote, this is the response, the best, the highest level response to the inner voice, to those inner doubts, to those inner suspicions that maybe we're not as holy as we would think. The response is, who has time to analyze? Who has time for the couch? Who has time for the, th the spiritual therapy? There's stuff to do. There's a world that needs to be fixed. That needs tikkun olam. There's a, there are people. There are people who need me. There's a world that needs me. There's God who needs me to do my job. And I'm going to start taking my time and answering the claims of this, of this nudnik, yetzahara, satan, uh, malachamavis. I need to answer this guy. Are you kidding me? What, I'm bored? I have nothing to do in my life. I'm going to say, oh, sure, let's have a dialogue. A dialogue? I got stuff to do, bro. I got a mitzvah to do. This is what God told Moses in Egypt. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go because they have an appointment with me at Sinai. Not, oh, you're a bad guy, Pharaoh. You're violating human rights. You should know that the Geneva Convention, nah, 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 none of that stuff. None of that stuff. We have an appointment at Sinai. Got to run, bro. I got to go. I have no time for shenanigans. I got to go. I don't even have time to argue with you. I just got to go. This is the greatest response to the inner voice that says, you're not worthy, you're not holy, you're a fraud, you're an imposter, you're not legit, you're not really, you know, you're not really. I don't have time. I just don't have time. This was classically the Rebbe's approach to the psychological the psychological stuff that torments us. Because we live in a world in which the going theory is you got to engage every thought and analyze it and break it down and deal with it and, and, and say, oh, is it right? Is it not right? And the Rebbe's approach so often, not always, but so often was, who has time for all this stuff? And while you're grappling with all that stuff to figure it out, you know how many opportunities are passing us by? Who has the time? Who has the time? Right? It's like, I am worthy. I'm not worthy. I am a tzaddik. I'm not a tzaddik. Who? What? Where? When? You got, you got the next mitzvah. I said this story recently. Rabbi Shusman said this story also recently. It's like the guy, the rabbi told this college student, I want you to go and put on film with people. Other students. And the guy says, you know, full disclosure, I, I confess, I don't always put on film myself. The response is, so why should, that, why, why, why should that hold you back from putting on tefillin with us? Why should they suffer because, because of you not putting on tefillin? So who cares? Now, it's kind of like, get over yourself. It's not about you. I don't put on tefillin, so I can't put on tefillin on others. Forget about you and put on tefillin. Others need you. So you're not perfect? Who cares? The Rebbe's perspective was always, you don't have to be perfect to create a perfect world. You don't have to answer about your perfection to the Satan when the world is waiting for your contribution. Every single human being has a contribution to make to this world. The world cannot exist without your contribution. It can't. That's what God put you in this world. It cannot reach its fulfillment without your contribution. So what? You're going to delay your contribution because you're trying to figure things out? Don't make this about you. Make this about what you need to do. That's Rabbi Yochanan Zaka. He never thought about himself. He was thinking about his mission. And this is the ultimate antidote against those, those voices of self-doubt. The ultimate antidote is stop getting caught up in it. Don't get caught up in the drama. 
Just go, go higher. The drama is here. Just go over the drama. Just go over the drama. It says, oh, maybe you're not, maybe this, maybe that. See you later. We'll talk about this later. I got something I need to do. I got something very important. I have a mitzvah to do. So the next time you're ready to do a mitzvah, the next time the voice comes into your mind and says, you know what, let me go out to a kosher restaurant for lunch. And then the inner voice says, oh, kosher, suddenly now you're going to go to a kosher restaurant. Dismiss that thought immediately and say, I'm not going to get into the analysis now. Whether or not I am or I'm not, whether or not I, 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 sh- I am doing what I should be doing other times, it's irrelevant. Because right now, I got an appointment at Fuego, or at Formaggio, or at Spicy Peach, or at Chai Peking. Okay, we don't have that many options here, but I think I've listed all of them. Right, right now, right now, huh? Togo Grill, Togo Grill. <coughs> oh, and, and um, Togo Grill, and Tip Top, Tip Top, Tip Top. Right? I got, okay, not bad, not bad. We're getting more as the conversation goes on. But tell yourself, I, you know, I'd love, I'd, love, I'd love to banter this around. I'd love to, like, analyze where I'm holding. You know, in the, the, do, do, like, a, 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 a full deep dive analysis into where spiritually I am. But I, 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 I got to eat some kosher food right now. It's time to light Shabbat candles. Oh, I didn't do it last week. I feel guilty about it. Stop, 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 stop. No guilt. What's the guilt? The guilt's just not gonna the guilt's just gonna hold you back. Even answering no, because really, don't even answer it. Don't answer the inner voice. Just do it, Nike says. Just do it. And so, my friends, we've learned a halacha according to Jewish mysticism. We took a law, we explained the parameters, and then we learned everything. We replicated the entire experience on a different plane. We talked about Modeb Mikzas, where there's a claim of 100, a counterclaim of 50, an oath that's required, or the defendant goes first and, and overrides the oath in case of, of, of extreme loss. And we explained all of those details on a spiritual level. The Satan says, no, you're mine. I got you. The counterclaim is, you got me partially. <laughs> the solution to that, to that dilemma is, take an oath and redouble your efforts. But because of the great loss, the great loss of time, and, and energy, we don't, time is a commodity we cannot get back. Every second is precious. And so, because of the preciousness of time, we can't afford to start dealing with the claim and taking oaths. Just bypass the case and just do the next right thing. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope this made sense. I hope my called shot was shot or whatever. I don't know what the right follow-up was, but I hope you enjoyed the class. Thank you. Now, now you kind of feel compelled. No, I'm kidding. Not you, but all right. Either way, thank you very much for, uh, for being part of the experience. And I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it made sense. Made sense, guys? Yes? Yes? Looking for a quote from the Yes, Ray. Um, so I have a question. Yeah. Uh, does Satan appear when you're dying, before you die? When does Satan appear? When do we have time to start analyzing? Satan. Oh, the Satan. Oh, when the Satan? No, the Satan. Oh, good question. Classically, Satan, that, well, yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's a, it's a complicated thing. There is a judgment that happens after a person passes away, an assessment. 
But according to the Talmud that we studied, there's, an, there's a judgment that might happen at any point in time upon which the Satan might say, no, let me take him out. God forbid. So when does that happen? I have no idea. But it seems like it could happen potentially at any time. Um, <coughs> but according to this, we have an answer. Sorry. But that's on, a, that's on a, maybe a more classical level. But on a, on a more personal level, the Satan, what, the way we're framing it here, is not just an accusation, a prosecution, some sort of random heavenly court case, but it's that inner voice inside, well, inner voice, that says, who are you to do the mitzvah? Who are you? You're not, you're not a mitzvah person. You're not, that's not you. That's Satan who says that. Satan says, you're not that person. Who are you fooling? That's not you. You're being a hypocrite. Oh, hypocrite, you're a liar. You're pretending. You're pretending. Stop being fake. Be really you. You know who you are. Come on. You're, you're, I know who you are. You know who you are. Stop faking. That's an evil voice. That's an evil. That's where it gets evil. It pretends to be authentic, real, legit. It's pretending to be so real and authentic. It's the worst. It's so devious. That's what we're talking about tonight. I know that's not your question. Your question is, when does this court case happen? I don't know. I, I don't know when it happens. Um, but, but that's the danger. Steve, yeah. Yeah, as our, our Rabbi Ari's dad said, don't be afraid. Right? Yeah. Commit yourself to your relationship with Hashem. It's going to be cool. Yeah. Yeah, your dad said that. Yeah. In uh, Journey of the Soul. That was an unbelievable, unbelievable experience. I actually recently looked back at the video. I think it was right by, uh, by your dad's yard site. I, I went back to the video to, take a, to, to, to relive that dialogue. Very, very special. Um, but yeah, we can't live in fear. And that's the point. We can't live in fear. We can't, what's the Lushen? What's the word? Kowtow, maybe, or something like that. We can't start, we can't dance around this voice. Just got to just steamroll it. Just with an 18-wheeler. Like, I, I, I literally don't have time. Standing up, no, wait, like, we have to talk about this. Where, where, where are we in this relationship? See you, I gotta go. I gotta go. I got, we gotta go keep on moving forward. No time. Time. Adam doyeg al damav doyeg al yamav. It says. A beautiful statement. A person worries about his money, doesn't worry about his time. Adam, sorry. Damav enam oizrim. Money doesn't help. The yam of enam chayzrim and time never comes back. Right? We worry about money. Meanwhile, money, what's money going to do? So, yeah, but time, time is a precious commodity. Ooh. You say the vidui at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. You say the confession at the end. You're, yeah? You're, you're, make, you're, what, you're admitting things and you're asking for forgiveness? You're asking for forgiveness. Yeah, like Rabbi Yochanan Benz <coughs> Benzaki did. At the end, you're being contemplative. You're thinking, okay, so where am I holding? What do, what do I need to make amends for? But, but, to, but to, to take time away from our mission, to, to start thinking about and drudging up or trudging up, whatever, all the, all the dredging up, all of the negativity, that's a distraction. That's exactly what the Satan wants us to do. Exactly. She wants us to keep us in a spiral of negativity, of circling around the negativity to keep us stuck. That's exactly the, it's, it, if we do that, if we spend our days thinking about what, what I did do, what I didn't do, and not doing what we need to be doing, hook, line, and sinker. It has us hook line, and sinker. The Rebbe says, I love this, thank you, Sandrine, for sharing, you cannot add more minutes to the day, but you can utilize each one to the fullest. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're talking about here. 
It's not. That's in Paris. Oh, nice. Oh, the Rebbe in Paris. Beautiful. So the the Talmud says it's basically the same thing. It's all the negative force. Yeah, but one refers to the voice inside, and one refers to it in the mode of prosecution. But it's the same thing. It's the same thing because even the prosecution happens inside. That's what I'm trying to share tonight. Like my chiddush, my my addition, my uh, angle tonight is that the prosecution is what's inside. The prosecution is. Don't light Shabbat candles. Who are you to light Shabbat candles? Hey, don't be a faker. Don't be a hypocrite. And the response is, bye-bye, no time. I got to light Shabbat candles. Don't eat kosher. Why are you eating kosher? It's basically imposter syndrome, spiritual imposter syndrome. Straight up. Spiritual imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is not believing that you are worthy, that you are capable, that you are deserving. And the inner voice says, you're deserving of a mitzvah? Uh-uh, you're 100% mine. And the, the response shouldn't be, well, no, 50, because you know what? You're still engaging with it. You're still, you're still um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not engaging, you're still um, not amusing. You're giving it validity? Yeah, you're validating it. Exactly, you're validating it. Oh, no, not 150. It says, no, 75, no, 70. You want to spend your days negotiating? What is this? Negotiating? We have time to negotiate. Meanwhile, we miss a mitzvah because we're negotiating. But this is, it's for those, and I feel a little bit bad because I want to share something that I'm going to share tomorrow in the JLI class, but some of you took it last night, so you know what I'm talking about. I'll mention it very briefly. It's the same idea as Hesachadas, which we spoke about last night. Hesachadas is just put it out of your mind and move forward. Hesachadas means don't think about it. Don't think about it. The moment you think about it, that you're done. You're done. You're thinking about it. You're processing it. You're analyzing it. You're grappling with the thought. I like it. I don't like it. I want to get rid of it. Even if you're trying to get rid of it, finished. There's one solution. Move forward. Vayisau. The Jews at the sea. They want to fight with the Egyptians. They want to go back. God says, just keep on moving forward. There's no time. You've got to get to Sinai. You have a date with God at Sinai. Who told you to stop? Keep on moving. I, this was maybe in other generations there was other approaches whatever the Rebbe's perspective in our generation was this is the healthiest and the only approach that's going to be effective because otherwise we're going to drive ourselves crazy and spend years and countless monies in therapy I don't mean that cynically I'm just saying it's, it's going to be a never ending cycle and circle of this and that and the other the healthiest, and you, you, everyone knows this, the healthiest we've ever been is when we had a mission and we were focused on it and we were doing what we needed to be doing and we were locked in and we weren't thinking about all this stuff. Everyone, everyone in a moment of honesty knows that what I'm saying is true. You are at your healthiest when you're locked in to what you need to be doing. When, you, when you're not doing what you need to be doing and you're thinking about all the stuff, that's when it's the most dangerous. That's what the Rebbe said. Yeah, does this make sense? Yes? I'm saying everyone agrees with this, but I'm, it's a bit of a presumption. But I believe that everyone, that everyone knows it to be true. All right, my friends. Yeah? Good. Rabbi, Rabbi I yes. wish you a happy birthday. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm uh, a day late. It's okay. I, I was impressed by your anecdote, I think, I think last week or maybe two weeks ago, about the, the guide dog and the Rebbe, Rebbe uh, mentioning 
that please find a way yep. to allow the uh, gentleman in, you know, to uh, join in the services with his guide dog. Right. And, and so now I understand why you allow dogs in your Zoom pro- uh, class. Oh, there you go. Right. And you should be commended for that. See that? We're, we're an equal opportunity <laughs> space. Good, good, good. All right. Um, it's getting very late. I'm going to run. Any other questions, feel free to email or call or whatever. We can schmooze offline. I want to wish everybody a Laila Tov. Don't forget, a few very important announcements. Number one, for those of you that did not have a chance to join the new JLI course meditation from Sinai, I can tell you without, without a question, without a shadow of a doubt, you want to take this course. So there's an opportunity in person tomorrow at noon. If you can't make it tomorrow at noon right here, then grab the recording. You can email me. Let's get you in on this. It is too good to miss. So that's announcement number one. Announcement number two, I'm going to reiterate my invitation. Friday night dinner, 6.30 for those that can make it, for those that wish to make it. We're doing a Shabbat dinner in honor of my birthday. You can have a chance to say l'chaim and celebrate. It's a lavish, literally lavish four-course meal, and everyone is invited. You can join us, my family and I, and our extended family, of course, all of you, 6.30 6.30 p.m. Friday night, just let me know, and we'll save a spot for you. So that is that. Next Monday, next Monday, or next next Monday, we have Rosh Chodesh Society, Chala Baking Extravaganza. We're going to be learning the spiritual significance of Chala Baking, as well as learning some practical Chala making hacks from the Chala Girl, who has a tremendous business locally here in Atlanta with an Instagram account. Um, she is also a good friend of ours, and she is going to be presenting, along with Leah, my wife, uh, Monday night, Rosh Chodesh Society. I forgot to mention, Sunday night is our Jewish book club. Um, the Beauty Queen of Jerusalem is the book. We have a fantastic conversation, both in person and online. If you read the book, if you're part of it, if you're not part of it, you want to just grab the cliff notes, you can join. Ch- take a look on the website for more information about that. What else is upcoming? What else? RCS we did... We have an event with um, Hidden Secrets of Jerusalem, an online event. Check out information for that on our website, intownjewishacademy.org. Uh, I'm going to let you guys go. It's getting late. All right. I have one Lila question. Tov. Could it be called being in the matrix? Which, which piece of it? After, 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 just going ahead and being in the matrix. Stop, not, be, not thinking about... Could be. I mean, it depends on what you mean by me. Yeah, it could be. It's, it's, about, it's about just not, not being gurus. It's just not, not, not even entertaining the conversation. I got to go. I got my things to do. Right. And that's it. That's, that's yeah. according to what you described as the matrix in your matrix course. Okay. Could be. That's, could be. Yeah. All right. We'll see. Yes. Pleasure. Lila Tov. Lila Tov. Thanks for all the good wishes. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see everybody. Take care. Bye.